Lift off and the clock has started. This is 20 Minutes You'll Never Get Back. Oh my God, that was fantastic. <laughs> the dramatics, the suspense, I loved it. That was Tony from Santiago, Chile. Look at that, I have an international announcer. <laughs> and I, I'm seriously, the ending was so dramatic. Let's just listen to the end one more time. You'll never get back. Seriously, thanks again, Tony, for doing that. And if you would like to be an announcer, just like Tony, because, you know, this podcast was heard at least in 47 different countries so far, uh, it's very easy. Listen to the end of the show. After I say bye-bye, don't, don't push stop, because there's a little, a little uh, like, 20-second bit at the end that explains to you how you can be an announcer. All right? So let's uh, move on to the next business, and that's our state's update. Well, as of this recording, we're still missing seven states, so nothing new. We'll keep trying. Okay, let's see. Uh, Tony from Chile, uh, states update and how you can be an announcer. I think we're all set, so let's get going with the show. Well, welcome to episode 48. And it's not just episode 48. Welcome to the first anniversary of 20 Minutes You'll Never Get Back. That's right. Yep, one year ago on uh, June 19th, um, I posted my first podcast. And you may recall, if you're a regular listener, that back then I mentioned one of the reasons I started this whole thing was that I was appalled by how long it took to toast a piece of bread. Well, sadly, I can report that nothing has changed in the year. 48 episodes later, we have a helicopter flying around the surface of Mars taking pictures. But if I drop a piece of bread in the toaster, I have time to read War and Peace before it pops back up. Why am I the only person concerned about how long it takes to toast a piece of bread? <laughs> oh, all right. I've digressed. I apologize. So back to episode 48 one year. Well, to celebrate, I decided to pop open a bottle of champagne or sparkling wine. I like champagne or sparkling wine, but beyond knowing how to open a bottle without spilling it everywhere, I don't know much more. And I think you know what happened next. That's right. What's up with champagne? or sparkling wine. Uh-huh. I did some research, so you don't have to. And based on what I researched, there's way more than I want to know. I, I could fill uh, another year worth of 20-minute podcast just on champagne or sparkling wine. So I'll provide just some highlights, and trust me, you'll appreciate just the highlights. Unless you're a bubbly connoisseur, then you probably already know all of this. So first of all, why do so many people get so uppity and question your enology when you generically say you'd like a glass of champagne? And by the way, enology is the study of winemaking. <laughs> See, you learn something extra. Well, strictly speaking, champagne is a sparkling wine that comes from the Champagne region of northeastern France. Hello, all of my French listeners out there. If it's bubbly wine from any other region, it's sparkling wine, not champagne. Now, while many people have used the term champagne generically, guilty, for any sparkling wine, the French have maintained their legal right to call their wines champagne for over a century. The Treaty of Madrid, signed in 1891, established this rule, and the Treaty of Versailles reaffirmed it. The uh, European Union helps protect this exclusively now, Although certain American producers can still generically use champagne on their labels if they were using the term before 2006. 
Sounds like cheating to me. So we know the name Champagne is protected, and only sparkling wine produced in Champagne region can be called Champagne, but the same actually goes for the process that assures those trademark bubbles. It's called, pardon my French term, the Méthode Champenois. <laughs> it sounds good to me. Champenois. And only Champagne makers in the Champagne region can claim its use. So who really invented this whole process of making sure that the champagne has the perfect bubbles in it. Well, the people of France thought they had discovered the answer in 1821 when a Benedictine monk named Dom Groussard told a story about Dom Perignon. Now, Dom Perignon was a monk who had lived at the Abbey of Hautvies. And let me stop here for a second and apologize to all of my French listeners. <laughs> I'm doing the best I can. Anyway, Dom Perignon lived at this abbey more than 100 years earlier. According to Grissard, Don Perignon had experienced a happy accident when he opened a bottle of wine that had been bottled before it had completely fermented. The wine continued to ferment inside the bottle, and when Perignon went to open it, the cork popped out and the wine fizzed and sparkled. Curious, Dom Perignon poured himself a glass. He was thrilled with the taste and the little tiny bubbles tickling his nose. He called out to the other monks, Brothers, come quickly, I'm drinking stars. Then Dom Perignon went on to develop a method of assuring that his wine was always fizzy. Well, that's a cute little legend, and the French believed it for a long time. I mean, come on, it's from a monk, so it should be a pretty reliable source, but... Sadly, this one wasn't. Turns out that Dom Groussard liked to exaggerate. Now, part of what he said was true. Dom Perignon did exist, and he did work as a cellar master at the Abbey of Hautvies for most of his life. He was responsible for acquiring more vineyards and for improving the Abbey's non-sparkling wines. However, his work was documented, and there was no mention of him ever making sparkling wine, either accidentally or on purpose. In fact, in Dom Perignon's time, wine with bubbles was something to be avoided. It did occur naturally from time to time in what was called devil's wine or pop-top wine. <laughs> I think you can buy pop-top wine on the shelf of the store today. The bubbles would develop when the wine was bottled before its fermentation process had finished. Pressure would build up inside of the bottle and often cause the cork to either pop or for the bottle to explode. Flying debris would hit other bottles, then set off a whole chain reaction of popping and bottle breaking. This could cause a substantial loss of wine, duh. Not to mention the wounds inflicted on any suspecting monk who happened to be working near the flying glass, duh. So while it's true that Dom Perignon did a lot to advance the Abbey's wine production, he never tried to create sparkling wine. In fact, he tried to avoid it. So now it looks like that Dom Grussard invented this story and embellished other tales just to give the Abbey more historical importance. He also claimed that Dom Perignon was the first to use the cork and that he could identify which vineyard a grape had come from just by tasting it. Yeah, both those stories were also untrue. But all of France believed this tale and gladly embraced the star-sipping monk as the inventor of champagne. It was a good story, and the French business associations used it to promote the drink and the champagne region. The legend also helped the reputation of the fizzy drink, which had long been associated with royalty. Now that people knew it had been invented by just a lowly monk, it would be a drink for everyone. In 1921, Moet and Chandon created a brand of champagne called, you got it, Dom Perignon, after the monk credited with inventing the bubbly brew. 
Now, you didn't think this was going to end there, did you? Nope, there's even more controversy. It turns out that Dom Perignon's newfound celebrity as the inventor of the champagne-making process, well, that provoked another abbey in Carcassonne in southern France to scream from the top of their bell tower, um, hello, no, we were first. Benedictine monks in Carcassonne are documented as making a sparkling wine since 1531. Their version is called Blanquette de Limoux and is bottled before it's finished fermenting. So while the Carcassonne Abbey may have the claim as possibly making the first wine made on purpose, they did not invent the modern champagne-making method. However, Carcassonne's claim did give rise to another legend that says Dom Perignon had visited their abbey and saw their winemaking process and stole a recipe from them. Oh my God, this could turn into a series on Netflix. Why Why hasn't this happened yet? In the 1990s, news came out of England that made the uh, French champagne industry get their uh, knickers all bunched up. Papers were discovered proving that the English were using the modern method of champagne making before Dom Perignon even entered the Abbey. It seems that in the 17th century, England imported large quantities of non-sparkling wine from the Champagne region. The Brits bought it by the barrel and bottled it themselves. They liked it when they got an occasional bubbly barrel and worked out a method to ensure their wine fizzled and sparkled. Evidence of this dates back to 1662 when English scientist Christopher Merritt wrote, quote, Our wine coopers of recent times add vast quantities of sugar and molasses to wines to make them drink brisk and sparkling. The English had an abundance of sugar from their Caribbean colonies, and they added that to the finished wine when they bottled it to cause a second fermentation inside the bottle. A great plus was that they had also developed a stronger, thicker glass that could withstand the pressure of the secondary in-bottle fermentation. The method of double fermentation called, here we go again, méthode champenois, was used in England from the 17th century. The Champagne region didn't start to use it until the 19th century. Even so, the 1994 term Méthode Champenois, I just want to keep saying that because I'm probably saying it wrong, cannot be used to describe the process for making any sparkling wines other than those produced in the Champagne region of France. So while sparkling wine has occurred naturally and sporadically since people began making wine, it seems like the modern method used in champagne making today began in England. So now that I've offended all the listeners in France and probably England and probably anybody else in the world, I think it's time to take a break. And when we come back, I'll talk about the different types of champagnes. And what did Hollywood have to do with saving a champagne industry? I'll be right back. One of the tests for bread is how it toasts. And ladies, this is where sun-fed bread really comes into its own. When you place that tender slice of sun-fed bread in your toaster, you're just seconds away from toast perfection. Like hell, you're just seconds away from toast perfection. We've already talked about this. You're minutes, if not hours, probably days away from it. Calm down, Doug. All right, let's get back to uh, champagne, shall we? Most of the uh, champagne produced today is, quote, non-vintage. 
That means it's a blended product of grapes from multiple vintages or multiple grape pickings, if you will. Most of the base will form a single-year vintage with producers blending anywhere from 10 to 15% of wine from older vintages. Now, I know you're saying to yourself, hey, Doug, that has been some great information. But let's say I wanted to sound sophisticated. What is the uh, top type of champagne I should request, you know, when I go into a fancy restaurant or I go clubbing? (laughs) Well, I'm glad I'm here to help you out with your clubbing question. (laughs) Sometimes I say stuff just to amuse myself. (laughs) The top type of champagne is called a cuvée de prestige. Now, this uh, cuvée de prestige is a proprietary blend of champagne that is considered to be the top of a producer's range. Perhaps the first publicly available prestige cuvée was a Moet and Chandon's Dom Perio, launched in 1936 with a 1921 vintage. Did you get all that? You write all that down? Until then, Champagne houses produce different cuvées of varying quality, but a top-of-the-range wine produced to the highest standards was a relatively new idea. Another type of champagne is the Blanc de Noir. Now, this is a French term, probably not the way I pronounced it, that literally means, quote, white from blacks or white of blacks. This is for a white wine that's produced entirely from black grapes. Now, the flesh of black or red grapes is is basically white. So the juice obtained after minimal possible contact with the skins produces essentially a white wine with a slightly yellower color than wine from white grapes. You can probably guess what the next type is. Yep, it's called Blanc de Blancs. It's a French term, once again, that means white from whites. And it's used to designate champagnes made exclusively from Chardonnay grapes, or in rare occasions, a Pinot Blanc. (laughs) And the last type I'm choosing to talk about is the Rosé Champagne. Now, Rosé Champagnes are characterized by their distinctive blush color, their fruity aroma and earthy flavor, and the Rose Champagne has been produced since the late 18th century. It, It didn't just happen. The wine is produced by one of two methods. In the first method, the winemakers will leave the clear juice of the dark grapes to macerate with the skins for a brief amount of time. That results in a wine that's lightly colored and flavored by the skins. The more common method is called de-assemblage. Wow, my French is getting better, I do believe. This uh, method, producers will blend a small amount of still red wine to a sparkling wine cuvee. Champagne is light in color even when it's produced with red grapes because the juice is extracted from the grapes using a gentle process that minimizes the contact with the skin. Now, by contrast, a rose champagne created by Assemblage results in the production of rosé with predictable and reproducible color, allowing winemakers to achieve a consistent rosé appearance from year to year. Rosé champagne was thought to be a sign of extravagance when it was originally introduced, and then by the early 20th century, these wines were known as pink champagne. Now, they got themselves into a bit of a reputation of being frivolous or even a distraction. The rosé champagne producers figured that they needed to do something quickly, so what did they do? Well, they turned to Hollywood. So the champagne producers approached the movie producers, 
of the 1939 film Love Affair, and that starred Irene Dunn and Charles Boyer, if you're keeping track. They wanted to promote their pink champagne by featuring the main characters bonding over and enjoying the now unpopular drink. Well, you know what happened. This caused a sales boost right after the film's release. Rosé champagnes began regaining their popularity in the late 20th century in many countries. Because of the complex variety of flavors it presents, rosé champagne is often served in fine dining restaurants as a complementary element in food and wine pairing. So take that fancy white champagne. All right, I still have a few minutes left, so let's go over a couple of things that I think you should know about. You may not think you need to know about them, but I think you need to know about them. First off is the champagne cork. Okay, pay attention. Champagne corks are mostly built from three sections and are referred to as agglomerated corks. The mushroom shape that occurs in the transition is a result of the bottom sections being composed of two stacked discs of pristine cork cemented to the upper portion, which is a conglomerate of ground cork and glue. The bottom section is in contact with the wine. Before insertion, a sparkling wine cork is almost 50% larger than the opening of the bottle. The cork starts off as a cylinder and is compressed before insertion into the bottle. Over time, their compressed shape becomes more permanent and the distinctive mushroom shape becomes more apparent. And lastly is the correct way of opening a champagne bottle. Now, I may not know very much about champagne, but I am a skilled professional at opening a bottle. Silent and no cork flying. Popping off the cork just ends with champagne on your floor, someone holding their eye and saying, ouch, and frankly, it's just uncouth. To properly open a champagne bottle, hold the cork and rotate the bottle at an angle in order to ease out the stopper. This method, as opposed to pulling out the cork, prevents the cork from flying uh, because, you know, the, <laughs> the gases expand at supersonic speed. Also, holding the bottle at an angle allows air in and helps prevent champagne from geysering out of the bottle. See, now I have raised your level of sophistication. You're welcome. All right, I think that's about all I have to say on champagne. But first, what have we learned? Well, we learned that Tony from Santiago, Chile... He should be an actor, great delivery. We learn that Dom Grussard has a real storytelling problem. And we learn, despite what he thinks, Doug cannot pronounce French words. <laughs> Sorry, France. That's it for episode 48. Thank you so much for tuning in. And if you've been with me all year, I really appreciate it. It's been fun. And uh, I will talk to you next time in the second year of 20 Minutes You'll Never Get Back. Bye-bye. Now I'm going to go pour myself a nice tall flute of champagne, probably rosé. Hi, it's me again, Doug. I want to take up a couple more seconds of your time just to remind you, if you want to stay informed of when uh, the next podcast is posted, all you need to do is sign up at uh, on that Instagram machine. It's at 20MYNGB, 20MYNGB, and that means 20 minutes you'll never get back. Uh, If you sign up there, you'll uh, always see when the next podcast is uploaded. And if you want to leave some comments, by all means, please do go to the uh, website at 20minutespodcast.com. So it's 20minutespodcast.com, and uh, you can... uh, 
leave your comments there. It also tells you how you can be an announcer for the show. So take take a look at those two things if you like and stay informed. And I'll, as always, thank you very much for listening to uh, 20 Minutes You'll Never Get Back. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.